Hear the word of the Lord from Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia in chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? So also Abraham, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. There is a handout this morning. If you didn't get one, Susan is there. You can just let her know. And Eddie's on the side. Um, yeah. Good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church. Uh, this morning, both pastors, Eric and Lawrence, are with their families. So, and you get me, and you get a handout. That's the joke. <laughs> so I am a preacher, but I'm also a teacher. And I felt like the things that are on this handout is the first is just a summary of Galatians, uh, the outline of the first part of Galatians, and then the actual text that we read with uh, the cross-references in the Old Testament and other New Testament uh, cross-references. I just thought this would be good for us to have. A lot of us have digital Bibles now, and there's nothing wrong with digital Bibles. I use, use mine all the time. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes it's good to have it in front of us and have the cross-references right there to see the text. So if you're a note-taking type, I helped you out. You can write notes right on the, right on the text itself. Um, but I wanted to start this morning by talking about something very serious. 
So listen up, I'm really frustrated with Waypoint. Waypoint people, you foolish people who tricked you, you fools who cast the spell on you. I, I can't be mean. I'm sorry, I'm trying. I mean, you guys haven't riled me up. You've been a pretty good congregation, you, you guys. So I can't do what Paul's doing in the text. Uh, give this harsh tone. James, thank you for starting with the, with, James was the perfect reader for today. Uh, starting with that harsh tone, uh, you know, I'm trying to make a point here. I am personally not angry. Can you grab that water right there? Oh, thanks. But I want us to think about Paul's tone in this letter. Is he really angry or just frustrated? Um, I'm going to tell you all a story that kind of dates me a little bit. Um, so I sent a message to one of our millennials in the church. I'm more of a Gen Xer. I'm a little older. And I just said, hey, I need to talk to you. And I put a period at the end. And I didn't know that that's like dreadful for some people. I didn't know that. I just, I'm used to periods at the end. I hit the space bar twice because that's what I grew up doing in typing class. And so I sent it to one of our congregants, Amelia. She'll, she'll, she's okay with this. This is a public story now. And she was terrified. She's like, what does Danny have to say to me? He's a pastor at my church. Did I do something wrong? So she lived the next four hours at work while she, she couldn't call me right away. So she calls me and is kind of like, is everything okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, there's a couple from Columbia that you, she likes to host international students and help them out. Uh, and they needed a place to stay. And I know you're good at that. Can you help them? And they end up being her, this is Jose and Lala. She ends up literally, become, they became her best friends. So the most mortifying text she could ever imagine became something that was probably one of the greatest blessings of her life. But I say that to kind of show the point. And Pastor Lawrence also puts, he just says, need to talk, period, or whatever. So if you get a text message from him and you're from a different generation, he's not mad at you. He's just a very, he's stream of conscious. Like what he's thinking, he puts on the text. So please don't, uh, don't. Call him back. He's not going to, like, he's probably not as angry as Paul is here. Uh, without, um, so back to the text. I know some of you are still rattled from my period, and you, you're gonna, it's going to take you half the sermon to get over it. Uh, I didn't know that was a thing. I just, I'm, I'm you know, I just was used to writing with full punctuation. Um, so is Paul irate here or just frustrated? Without us living 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, it's impossible to catch his exact tone. But from the wording and comparing it to his other letters and other Hebrew and Greco-Roman literature at the time, we can definitely tell that he's very frustrated and he's very upset with them. Uh, as Pastor Lawrence mentioned in his sermon introducing Galatians a few weeks ago, this is the only church letter where Paul does not thank them at the beginning of the letter. He just jumps right into the issues at hand. Um, now, Galatians is most likely the first letter Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. He might have written other letters that we don't, we don't have copies of. Um, so maybe he learned from his mistake, like I learned from texting younger people with the period, and he always included a thank you later. We, we, we don't know why Paul jumps right into the issue at hand. Um, and again, this is speculation, so please don't go around telling other people this is a biblical fact. I'm just trying to think, why, why would Paul do it? What's his tone? We know, all we can get from it is we know that he's very frustrated and he's, he's very angry with them. And he's even angry with Peter and he calls Peter out. That was the passage we looked at last week. Um, so that's, that's where we're at right now in this passage. 
And if you want to call me instead of text me, I love talking on the phone, just so you know that. And if I call you, just, just talk to me. Hey, let's have a dialogue. Uh, I wish we had Paul's dialogue. I wish we actually had like a voicemail or a Marco Polo or something where we could see Paul dialoguing with the church. Sometimes that might make it easier to understand some of the letters. At the same time, I believe the New Testament is perfect in the way it's given to us as a church, and it gives us everything we need to be the body of Christ. And we're going to wrestle with these things. But either way, we know that Paul's very frustrated, um, and he's angry at them. And he's angry particularly on this issue of why do they want people to be circumcised who are not Jewish people, and why are they adding this extra burden on them instead of bringing them and pointing them straight to Christ? Uh, let's recap what's going on at this point in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Let's start with a map. Um, if you look at the map, you can see Jerusalem down on the bottom. And what that area up there is mo- what is now modern Turkey. And the area in the white is kind of where Paul visited. If you look just below that white box, you can see uh, Cilicia. And then right below that is Tarsus. That's actually Paul's hometown. So where Paul has planted these churches and these particularly those three cities, uh, those are close to his hometown. So he would have understood the tension between the Jews living in those towns and the Greco-Roman people. And he planted churches in those cities in this area of Galatia. So this letter is written to those churches. Um, So go to your handout. The message of Galatians. This is from Dr. Simon uh, Gathercole, a British uh, New Testament scholar. The grace of God in the gospel and the promised spirit are sufficient for both salvation and the Christian life. That was the best summary of Galatians I found. And that kind of covers the essence of of this letter. The main message of Galatians um, is about confronting these. That's the message, but what he's doing is confronting these false teachers who have been spreading among the Galatian churches the need to be circumcised. He says that at the beginning and at the end of the letter. And he's trying to show them a better way, what the gospel truly is, that there's value in the law, and we'll look at that next week, but we are saved by faith and through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Um, So that's the message of Galatians. If we look at the uh, outline that I gave you, this is just getting us to where we are today. Sometimes I think that's helpful when we're in the middle of a letter uh, to see how we got here. So this outline is also from Dr. Uh, Gathercole. At the beginning of the letter, Paul talks about the unchangeable saving grace of Jesus Christ's death. Then Paul says he himself is a recipient of the gospel of grace. He was not one of the original disciples, which... Uh, He learns of Christ and accepts his grace. And he actually was one of the people who was a harsh Jew, a harsh Jewish leader toward the Christians. Then he says, and he brings up the idea that all of the apostles share in this gospel of grace. Then he says, the guy who Jesus put in charge of the apostles, Peter, the guy who literally God changed his name from Cephas to Peter, from Meaning, like he would be the rock, he would be the one of the key figures that the church would be built on. That Peter himself had a lapse and fell back into the very error that Jesus told him not to 
fall into. Then the Galatians, where we're at in today's passage, is the Galatians are being corrected. But I think it's cool how he says, even Peter can make this mistake. So you're not doomed when you make this mistake, but let's look to the cross and correct it. And then the second half of the passage we read this morning is that faith is the true response to grace as seen in the Old Testament. And then next week we'll look at the law was only a late and temporary measure and faith as the response to grace cuts across social boundaries. And then it goes into the second half of the letter where it talks about what it means to walk in the spirit. Um, so you guys got me? I haven't lost anybody? All right, good. I could text you and put a period on the end of it and scare you. Um, all right, now let's dive into the text. Um, and before we do that, I do want to thank my wife, Erica, our Women's Discipleship Director, and Tony Anderson, our new Children's Director, for talking through this passage with me this week. I've been praying a lot about how to preach it. It's, it's a beautiful passage, it's, but I just was like, what does our congregation need to hear? And they were in the office and around, and they, they really helped me process that. So I want to thank them as I prepared this sermon. Uh, I've received a lot of wisdom and insight from them. All right, let's jump right in. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Literally, who cast a spell on you? That's what he's saying. Harry Potter type. You know, literally, that's, that's what the Greek word means. Casting a spell on someone. Uh, before you're very... And it's, it's, it's a, a phrase that he's using to say that they are like outside... They have lost their mind. Uh, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And some scholars believe that Paul might have actually drawn a picture of Jesus on the cross here. Because that word portrayed is literally like a portrait. Um, and he wanted them to have a vivid mental image of Jesus on the cross. To drive home his point that the cross changes everything. And the law and the covenants in the Old Testament are finished and fulfilled in Christ. And they need to see this visual of the cross as a reminder, as a daily reminder to every believer of this reality. And we do this as a church every Good Friday. We take a, a whole worship service to reflect and literally envision the cross. And we're going to actually do this practice today when we take communion. We're going to take some time to stop and visualize Christ on the cross. Then Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says, I would like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? We are not saved by the works of the law, but by believing what we heard about the good news of Jesus and God's plan to call and save people that we are included in. So that's, Paul's just asking this rhetorical question that they should be able to answer easily. But at this point, some of you might be asking, what does Paul mean when he says works of the laws? It's easy to comprehend what he means, even 2,000 years removed from the text, by believing what, what we heard about the good news of Jesus. You know, we hear about Jesus and his saving power, and we believe. But what does he mean by works of the law? The basic answer is, by works of the law are works of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and really uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, and, and maybe even Deuteronomy, Paul means doing things that make, is saying that things that make you ethically, ethnically 
culturally and religiously Jewish, with circumcision being the starting point, and then directly followed by food laws and other custom and, customs and regulations found primarily in Leviticus through Deuteronomy and later customs and regulations that they added over the past hundred years. So I want you guys to follow me. So this is what's happening, is they are saying to become Christians, you also need to follow the Jewish law. Pastor Eric brought up a great illustration last week. He said it'd be similar to if to come to communion, I'd say you have to be an American. Like that's adding an extra restriction on communion. There's nothing in communion about your national status taking communion. And they were doing something similar to that. Now, for them, it was hard to comprehend because their culture, their ethnicity and their religiosity were all mixed into one. So for them to follow God meant to follow the food laws, to follow God meant to be circumcised. And for those of you who don't, circumcision is just a sign. Uh, don't Google it. I just, it's just, uh, for those of you who are new to the church or something, it's just removing the foreskin on the penis of a child to show that that person is part of the covenant community. We don't do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore because baptism replaces circumcision in the church. And we are all baptized into Christ. So we, we don't need to do that physical sign anymore. But these guys felt like they needed to do that because that's what you do. So what Paul's addressing by works of the law is whenever we bring an extra burden to people, just because that's what our customs, our cultures, that's what we feel like needs to be done so that people could come to God. And he's saying, no, we can come directly to God. I work in international student ministry, and I've spent the last 20 years really ministering cross-culturally, and I want to show you four diagrams that I teach, that I was taught when I moved overseas, and that I teach others. And if you look at this diagram, you see the top circle is Jesus, the kingdom culture. And then on one circle, it's, it's the culture of the people you're trying to love and share with, and then the other circle is your culture. You, you, you follow me so far. So there could be some things in, in your culture that line up with kingdom culture. Like our culture, I would say, cares for the poor. And that lines up with kingdom culture. But there are a lot of things in our culture or their culture that don't line up with kingdom culture. Next slide. So here's the goal. We are to move people from their culture to Jesus' culture. That's the goal of missions. That's the goal of cross-cultural ministry. But here's what we do. This is our natural tendency. We bring them through our culture. It's very famous and documented that when European and particularly American missionaries went to Africa, they literally brought organs and pianos on boats because they knew that organs, particularly pianos and organs, were part of Christian worship. When they had their own instruments in those countries, they didn't need... The new, not, there's nothing wrong with pianos or organs, but they could, we could teach them to worship God in their own context. We didn't need to bring these extra burdens. So one of the things that Paul's addressing here is we are victims and we are caught up in our own culture, and that's okay. God put us in this culture. It's okay. But when we bring cultural burdens and certain religious expectations onto other people, we are not bringing them straight to the gospel. This next one I added just for to this morning's sermon. Here's our goal. See lost people? Through faith, we want to point them directly to Jesus. And the works of the law is on the side. It's not going to get people to Jesus. And this, this diagram is probably the essence of this morning's sermon. Got me? Flowing with me? 
All right. So, ethnically, culturally, and religiously, we're all mixed together in this Jewish world. And these false teachers wanted, you know, who were Jewish people themselves, Jewish ethnically, they wanted all the converts to, you know, follow these requirements as part of becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. So like I said, Paul talks a lot about circumcision. That's probably the main theme in Galatians. He says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, how are you trying to finish by means of the flesh? And when Paul says flesh here, he's doing a play on words. Flesh has a couple meanings in the New Testament. One meaning is literally like human flesh. Another meaning is like the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam. And here he's literally talking about the foreskin flesh. He's, he's, he's saying like he's, he's bringing two words together to show their hypocrisy and just that they're missing the point. Um, and the Jewish people would know what Paul's saying here. At the end of Galatians, like I said, at the beginning of Galatians, he talks about circumcision. And here's how Paul ends Galatians in chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except for in the cross of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. This is how Paul summarizes the final of the letter. So obviously, Paul is trying to show them, don't add these works of the law, these extra burdens. So as the false teachers who want people to adhere to their ethnic, cultural, and religious rules as requirements to be followers of Jesus, Paul is saying a resounding no. That's why he calls them foolish and bewitched. Faith in the life and death of Jesus is what saves us. A key teaching of the New Testament that Paul begins to show here in Galatians and shows more fully and expands it in other places like Romans 1 through 11 is that Jesus was the perfect Israelite. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law in our place. So there is no need to force seekers and new believers in Jesus to follow the law in the same way as they did before Jesus. And Paul and other New Testament law authors go out of their way to show that the Old Testament continually enforces this teaching and that the new covenant is to replace the law and that our standing with God comes from faith in God apart from the law. Now back to Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Again, he's angry with them. He's, he's, he's kind of harsh here. He's, he's directly to these false teachers challenging them in love. So I ask again, does God give you his spirit by works and, and works miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture first saw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Now this is a provocative statement. Paul's saying that the good news of Jesus was announced to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when he says, all nations will be blessed to you, blessed by you and through you. Then he goes on and he says, those who rely on faith are, faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There are only three passages in the New Testament that teach directly on justification. Romans 3 through 8 uses the word justified or justification 15 times. Galatians 2 
through 5, what we're in now, um, eight times brings up the word justification. In all Paul's other letters, it only shows up twice. And it's not a teaching, it's just a statement. Uh, it shows up two times in James. And nowhere else in the New Testament is the term justification or justified. Peter and John and the author of Hebrews don't include it in their letters. So there's three major teachings in the New Testament where we get it. Um, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2, the three major places where we learn about justification, all quote this same passage about Abraham's faith from Genesis 15 when God is making a covenant with him. It's interesting, huh? So the three times we learn about justification in the New Testament all quote the same passage from Abraham. The most comprehensive one is in Romans 4, and I'm just going to read the first part of it. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered of this matter? In fact, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God's credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will never count against them. In this blessedness, only is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. This passage is much longer, but I wanted to give you the start of Paul's other teaching, other than Galatians, on justification and how he uses Genesis 15, the Genesis 15 teaching that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And I love how he even goes to David, too, and shows the same idea was already in the Old Testament. Now to James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Sorry, I've got the wrong translation. I'll read the one up there. If someone claims to have faith but no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by deeds. Uh, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. If you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions are working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. It's pretty cool. Friend of God, right? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
This James passage is showing that justification and works are not enemies. John Calvin says this, commentating on this James 2 passage. We indeed allow that good works are required for righteousness. We only take away from them the power of conferring or, or bestowing righteousness because they cannot stand before the tribunal of God. So according to the three passages about justification, an active and believing faith like Abraham and Rahab and an acknowledgement that we cannot cleanse ourselves from our sin like David is the only thing required to gain the free gift of righteousness and to be declared right before God. You guys follow me here? I just gave you a lot of scripture, but I didn't want to teach on justification without looking at the whole counsel of the New Testament. If you need more clarification on this, some of you are probably lost right now, and that's, that's okay. I'm just trying to tell you, just if you forget everything, all those other passages I said, just remember this, that even going back to the Old Testament, the teaching has always been the only thing required to gain the free gift of God's righteousness, to gain his salvation, and to be cleared right before God is an active and believing faith like Abraham and, and an acknowledgement that we cannot cleanse ourselves from our sin like David had. That's it. That's the good news of Jesus. It was in the Old Testament. It was part of the first covenant that God makes with Abraham. It was part of the second covenant God makes, the completion of the covenant that God makes with him in Genesis 15. And it's your story too. It's our story. It's a free gift of righteousness that we have. We get God's righteousness. Pastor Eric preached on this last week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of that, what it means, but just know that this is what Paul is telling us here. The works of the law can't free us from our bondage, and they can't make us right with God. Only the life and death and resurrection and the seal of the Holy Spirit can do that. The work of Jesus and receiving of the Holy Spirit free us to do good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And I think this is best summed up in Ephesians 2, which is also a passage about circumcised and uncircumcised. Amazing how Paul has to keep going back to this theme. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Notice he uses the word works here. So that no one can boast. It's not by works. These are the works of the law. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, same Greek word, which God prepared for us in advance, in advance for us to do. And those good works, I believe, are the works of the Spirit. That's the last part of Galatians, the last part of even this section. Do you see the contracts? The works of the law can't free us from our bondage and make us right with God. Only the life, I'm repeating what I just said, but I want to say it again. Only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the seal of the Holy Spirit can do that. The work of Jesus in receiving the Holy Spirit free us to do good works through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now to verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And if you look on your thing, this is actually a quote from Deuteronomy, and it's requoted in Jeremiah 11. And Jeremiah 11 is when the prophet Jeremiah, when God tells him to tell them that the covenant has been broken. The covenant that in Deuteronomy has been broken and the blessing is gone. The covenant in Deuteronomy basically said, if you honor me and follow me, I will bless you. 
if you don't follow it, you'll be cursed. Two words, blessing and curse. So when a Jewish person hears this, they know what Paul is doing. He's saying that you're already under the curse. Go back and read Jeremiah 11. The people failed God. The law could not save the people. The prophets are pointing to a new covenant, a new way. The law was temporary, and we'll look at that next week in the sermon. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Again, the righteous will live by faith is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk as they are the Jewish, the people failed God and they're now experiencing the curse. And he's saying these foreign armies are going to come and invade us because we're under the curse because we didn't honor God. But he's saying in the midst of all that, the righteous will live by faith. Interesting thing that this passage is quoted in by Paul at the beginning of Romans when he's presenting the gospel and also by the author of Hebrews. It's quoted three times in the New Testament as an important Old Testament doctrine that we need to know. The righteous person will live by faith. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Basically, if you follow the law, you're under the law, but we can live by faith. Um, the law was a temporary covenant, but the covenant God made with Abraham is permanent, and that's fulfilled fully in Christ, and we are under that law. So you see what Paul's doing here. He's trying to show the Jewish people that this extra burden that you're adding wasn't even in your original code anyway. There's, and we'll talk about that next week. There's not, the law of Moses had a purpose to, get, to show the brokenness of people and to point us to the need of a Savior, But the covenant that God makes with Abraham is the covenant we're looking back to. And that is a covenant built on faith. And actually, Paul says that the good news is part of that. The gospel is part of that. And we're recipients of that. That's why we can sing, Father Abraham. How many of you grew up singing that song? I have many sons. That's the promise. We are part of Abraham's family because of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. It's, it's the beginning of the, this process, and we are in a new covenant now under Christ that is a continuation of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus was hung on a cross. Now when Paul says this, this is a very dangerous statement. It's dangerous because he's basically saying God was cursed. God, the righteous God, was cursed. And what he means is on the cross, Jesus took the curse so that we could have the blessing. The covenant to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, was fulfilled when Jesus took the curse so that we could reap the blessing. The point of Paul bringing up the Habakkuk passage and these other, and the Deuteronomy passage and now another Deuteronomy passage is to show the Jewish person that they're cursed anyway. They lost the blessing of Deuteronomy. That's why they were forced into exile and that they needed the Messiah to come so that they could finally get the blessing. Verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the world, 
through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise, Holy Spirit. And if you look at the text here, you see Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, requoted in Acts 2 and reminded us by Jesus in John 7, showing us that the old covenant was about pointing us to the new covenant. The law of Moses was not the final covenant. We, there is a new covenant, which is a continuation of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And we're part of that new covenant. And the seal of that covenant is we receive the Holy Spirit. All right, so four thing, three things, I'm going to end with this, that I, want, I think Paul would want us, Paul would send a text message and put a period at the end of it. I really think so. Three things that he would not want our, people in our context to miss on this passage, and I don't want us to miss them. One, we were made right with God because of Jesus. He took the curse so that we get the blessing. If you forget everything else I said this morning, just, just remember these three things. Two, we must not add works of the law. Three, by faith we receive his grace and his Holy Spirit, and we will do good works in and by the Spirit. So one, we were made right with God because of Jesus. He took the curse and we get the blessing. You're made right with God. We don't have to earn it. It's done. Now go do good works. Produce fruit. Obey his commands because his commands are life. But we're going to do this in community. It's hard. The world is pulling us in one direction, but Jesus is like, trust me. I created you. I was there at the beginning of the universe. I know. Trust me. We can cast our burdens onto him and he will give us life. So remember that you're made right with God and we are under the blessing and we need to live as people who are on, under the blessing, not as people who are under the curse. Two, we must not add to the works of the law. Now, throughout church history, different people have determined what this is. Everyone thinks that their version of Christianity is like fighting this. Or not everyone, but a lot of, a lot of people. So all I can tell you is what not to be the works of the law is things that require people to do things that are in addition to following Christ and honoring Christ and pointing them to Christ. And I think, I truly believe that we're to flesh this out in our local communities. What would it mean for us to fall, to, to go back to this, cultural things, extra religious burdens on people that keep them from able to really receive the righteousness of Christ. So this is not, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for what are the works of the law. We don't circumcise people anymore. We add other cultural and religious rules onto people that could keep them from following Christ. So my final conclusion on this, I get from looking at Paul himself. So Paul has this whole book of Galatians, basically don't get circumcised, in it, he says he purposely didn't make Titus get circumcised, who's a Greek. He confronts Peter, who's allowing this practice to be taught. But then an interesting thing, in Acts chapter 16, Timothy, who has a Greek father and a Jewish mother, who's going to go to Galatia, to these churches, after this letter was written, Paul asked him to be circumcised, to relate to the people. Seems like hypocrisy. It's not. Paul's saying, 
we're trying to reach the Jews and the Gentiles in that city, Timothy. And for your context, because of your cultural heritage, I think it would be better to do it. So that's where I truly believe that the New Testament gives us the ability to flesh this thing out as a church. And we need each other. We're go- as pastors and church leaders, we're going to come to you with the text, but you're going to come to us and we're going to wrestle with this stuff. Okay? It's not a black... The Bible, the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of black and white. This is exactly how you do it in every context. But it does give us all the principles we need to be his church. And we're going to do that. The final one. By faith, we receive his grace and his Holy Spirit, and we will do good works in and by the Spirit. Like I mentioned, Paul mentions justification 16 times. He mentions the Spirit in his letters 145 times. <laughs> he wants us to live by the Spirit. Justification is important. It's how it shows that we're credited by righteousness. But living by the Spirit is our goal as the church. Okay? So in every sermon, I'm supposed to tell you a story that inspires you about some Christian who did something great. I'm going to tell you one today. That person is you. And it's not what you did, it's what God did. So I want you to take a moment to reflect as we go into communion. Think about why you're here this morning. Think about the grace of God that saved you and set you free. You are a story in God's plan and God's kingdom and God's gracious, righteous plan to save people. And you are made right with God and you are called to a purpose and you can live for the kingdom of God. You're the person in the story. And you may feel like I'm a wreck. I don't know. If you, look, if you study Peter, you realize that he's the hero of our New Testament church. And he's got problems. He had problems when he was with Jesus. And he still has problems later on as he's founding the church. God is not looking for you to be perfect. He's looking for you to look at him because your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. You're the story. Just thank God for what he's done. Don't focus on the bad, the, the junk. Focus on the, who you are in Christ. And let his spirit change you. That's what we all need to do. We're going to come to communion. Um, and we're going to put the thing on the screen so that the server's... Uh, kind of explaining it, but before we do that, uh, actually take that down because I don't want people to focus on that. I want us. I want you to take a moment and imagine Jesus. Just close your eyes and imagine Jesus. Just picture it: a real human being, two thousand years ago, fully God, fully man, all the power in the world, all the power in the universe, humbly almost naked or naked, fully naked, on the cross, dying, taking the curse, being mocked and beaten and spit on so that we could reap his blessing. Just picture, that's what Paul says when he's like, Did you, could you portray Christ crucified? Portray the crucified Christ, bearing your sin and his righteousness becoming your righteousness. Now I want you to imagine the risen Christ, raised And then I want you to imagine a Christ ascended to heaven, seated in beauty at the right hand of the Father, 
and him pouring out the spirit on his church, us, right now, so that we could be his people and live for him. With that image in mind, let's come and take communion. And this is for believers, followers of Christ to come and remember Christ's death. So if you're a follower of Christ, uh, you can follow the instructions up here. We do some, I mean, can I get the servers to come up? We do something called intinction here. If you're not comfortable coming forward, we do have some cups, uh, gluten-free and regular in the back of the service. But this is our time to come and to partake in Christ and to remember his death. I'm going to read what Paul says in Corinthians about this supper, and then we'll take it. Paul says, For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Notice that word new covenant. That's the word we get in the Old Testament that says that we're not under the curse. That in this new covenant, we get to share in his blessing. And he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So at this time, you can come forward and um, take, take the bread and the cup. And this is for followers of Christ uh, to participate in this meal as, as he commanded us to do. Come forward.
you for the table where we come and remember that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could be made right with God. And I pray for each person here, if they don't know you, that they would have this believing, active faith that turns to Jesus and says, I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus. And for those of us who already know Jesus, God, I pray that this active faith would allow us to do the good works. And when we stumble and fall, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We keep turning back and refocusing ourselves on Jesus. That's our prayer. May we be the gospel community that lifts each other up and carries each other's burdens. And we long for the day when you come and make all things new. But until that day comes, God, allow us to live in your grace and walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.